2015. Thank you, Daisy, and good evening, everyone. I discovered poetry in, in a way like a lot of people do at a time of great need. As an eight-year-old child, I was sent to boarding school in that strange British habit that people have of sending their children to the other side of the country to a place where no one loves them. And I was lonely and short of friends. But the one thing the school thought I was good at doing was reading poetry aloud. And I won a prize or two, and I held on to that very tightly and to the poems as well. And when I went to big school, I had a really inspiring teacher who demystified T.S. Eliot. And thereafter, I used to learn poems just for fun, really. And one day in my early 20s, I had my first poetry pharmacy moment. I was about to cross the Cromwell Road, and I was waiting for the lights to change. And when the lights turned red, the man standing next to me started crossing the road, but one of the drivers jumped the lights. And there was the most appalling scene and series of sickening sounds, which I can still hear today, right in front of me. Very quickly, somebody from the crowd standing next to me ran to help this body lying in the road and dragged me with him. Uh, he was a first aider, and although the man had no pulse, by the time all of his uh, efforts had been put in, we had a very faint pulse come back. And in a flash, an ambulance came and went, police statements were taken, and I was standing at the same set of traffic lights the traffic moving again. And the only evidence I had of this really shocking experience was some blood on my hands. But I had learned a poem by Philip Larkin called Ambulances. And I don't know whether you know it, but it's a poem all about how you feel when you see that ambulance come to your street one day and one of your neighbors is stowed into this ambulance underneath stretcher blankets. And you sense the solving emptiness that lies just under everything we do. And for a moment, get it whole, so permanent and blank and true. The fastened doors recede. Poor soul, you whisper, at your own distress. For born away in deadened air may go the sudden shut of loss round something nearly at an end, and what cohered in it across the years, the random blend of families and fashions, there at last begins to loosen, inside a room the traffic parts to let go by, brings closer what is left to come, and dulls to distance all we are. Now the large gin and tonic in my hand and that piece of poetry just about helped me manage to cope with the most shocking experience I'd had in my life so far. And years went by and I started a publishing business and then started the Forward Prize for Poetry and then National Poetry Day. And I spent the next quarter of a century doing my very best to get poetry out of Poetry Corner and um, maybe making the corner just a little bit bigger but still feeling frustrated that this P word got in the way. 
I think people's image of poetry is a fusty, dusty, back of a bookshop, slim volume elite, something that's not for them. And one day, when the Olympics came along, I read in the newspaper that the Arts Council was spending a fortune towing some island around Cornwall to celebrate the Olympics. And the poetry lover in me got very angry, and I approached the Olympic organizations. And I said, listen, when the ancient Greeks had the Olympics, they had two stadia, one for the athletes and one for the poets. This is our greatest cultural export to the world, our language, our poetry, and we ought to be celebrating it. And luckily, they helped me out and commissioned a lot of poets to put poetry into that little bit of Dubai nestling in East London called the Olympic Park. And intriguingly, all the poets wrote about what had been there before, the Branton May Match Factory, the Boys Boxing Club. They gave the continuity of the place and brought it to life. And I was very honored that Faber and Faber said to me, would I like to edit an anthology of winning words of inspiring poems to celebrate the Olympics? And as a poetry lover, that was pretty exciting. So I said, yes, of course. And once the book was out, I, I went on tour in the way that writers do. And one day, a wonderful friend of mine called Jenny Dyson, who was helping to organize the Port Elliot Festival in Cornwall, said to me, I'm going to set you up to do a talk. Rosie Boycott, who will be on in a minute, will interview you. But afterwards, you're always prescribing me poems to cheer me up when my father died, when I got divorced, and so forth. I'm putting you in a tent with a prescription pad that I have designed, two armchairs, and a large blackboard outside, and people can book to come and see you, tell you their worries, and you can prescribe them a poem. <laughs> so I gulped. She said, bring copies of every poem you can think of that might help. So I did. And after my talk with Rosie, I sat in this tent, and I thought I would be there for an hour. Five hours later, with a very full bladder, I popped out of the tent for a break, and there was still a queue. And I realized that Jenny had finally opened the floodgates for me in a way to for people to access poetry without fear. And before I knew it, I was on Radio 4 on that Saturday morning magazine program. And they got such a lot of emails coming in for people requesting poems to help various things that I was brought back for that very tricky time, Christmas, uh, to prepare people with some poems for that tricky week with their families. Bizarrely, a few months later, I got a call from the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, and I was asked if I would conduct a review for the government on the future of the public library network. And I did not want to be a government inspector, so I offered to do a poetry pharmacy in every library that I visited. And over 18 months, I listened one-on-one -on -one to over a 1,000 people's problems. And it was a humbling, at times deeply depressing experience, but it was utterly revelatory. And it relates back so much to what our previous speaker, Rangan, had been telling you. Because I discovered how lonely everyone was. And I also discovered that whether I was in Toxteth or Kensington, everybody has the same problems. Our issues today are still universal. But what intrigued me was if I could find the right poem to give that person a sense of complicity with how they felt, they got out of the chair a foot taller. 
in some modern, almost cognitive behavior therapy, they knew they were coming only for 15 minutes. I would say at least half the people, if not more, reached for the box of tissues. But they came away with something which, to them, if I got it right, was cathartic. So I was really intrigued by this. And uh, ever since then, uh, I've carried on engaging with people and listening to people. And some extraordinary experiences have happened to me. Rangan talked about loneliness, and he's absolutely right. And it's absolutely to do with this. We live in this strange world where we seem to have so many platforms to communicate with each other, and yet they're not real. Because people put an avatar of themselves up on social media. They're full of likes and friends and holidays and a fraudulent sense of bonhomie. Nobody's putting out there, I'm lonely, I'm miserable, I need a friend, I need a hug. And even though they see through their own false behavior on social media, they fail to see through everybody else's. And this really exacerbates the loneliness and the difficulties that everyone is going through. And I found the shortest prescription of all, poetically, for loneliness. It was written by Hafez 700 years ago. And he said, I wish I could show you when you're lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. And I would give a copy of that to all my patients, excuse me, Rangan, and tell them to stick it on their mirror or their wall, learn it off by heart. One day I got an email from a delightful woman, I remember, from near Liverpool, who I'd seen in a mental health unit, and she said, I just wanted to write to you because last night I got burgled and my flat was ransacked and in that way that burglars do, everything was everywhere. Except those four lines of poetry that I'd stuck on my mirror as you told me to. Thank you, she said. It got me through the night. Just as movingly for me, last year I was doing a pharmacy in a co-working building in London. And halfway through the afternoon, the security guard came in and said, your 3.30's cancelled. I said, that's okay. He said, can I take that place? I said, of course, sit down. What's bothering you? He said, I'm 32. When I was 24, I came out, but I still haven't had a relationship. I said, that's very sad. Why do you think that is? He said, I don't know. I'm upbeat. I'm, I'm positive. I'm a, I'm a kind person. I'd be a good person to have a relationship with. But he said, I'm Muslim and I'm gay. And I can't be both. And I said, I don't think that's true. Let me take you back to Hafez, the most important Sufi mystic poet of all time, at the core of Islamic philosophy. And he wrote, it happens all the time in heaven. And someday it will begin to happen again on earth. That men and women who are married, and men and men who are lovers, and women and women who give each other light, often will get down on their knees with tears in their eyes and holding their lover's hand 
say with all sincerity, my dear, how can I be more loving to you? How can I be more kind? And the security guard got up with tears streaming down his face and gave me a big bear hug. And I'm delighted to say he's now dating. <laughs> Alan Bennett, many years ago, wrote a few lines which I'm going to have to quote to you. The best moments in reading are when you come across something, a thought, a feeling, a way of looking at things which you had thought special and particular to you. Now here it is, set down by someone else, a person you have never met, someone even who is long dead, and it is as if a hand has come out and taken yours. And that intrigues me so much, going back to what Rangan has just been telling us as a practicing NHS doctor. So often, in our isolation, in our loneliness, what we desperately need is to be listened to and to find an expression with how we feel. And in our increasingly non-communal world, isolated by these digital devices, and in an increasingly secular world, I believe the canon of poetry has become the secular liturgy. And that gives us an opportunity to find complicity, to commune, and to share. Poetry sales have gone up 40% in the last five years. And that's in part due to what I'm talking about, but also in part due to social media. Social media has allowed poets to become highly popular without having to go through middle-aged, middle-class, white poetry editors based in London. And it's been transformational in the most extraordinary way. We did a poll for National Poetry Day. Nearly 50% of young people say they engage with poetry one way or another. I couldn't have said that 10 years ago. And to me, that is what is incredibly exciting about this breakthrough that began for me at Port Elliot. This sense that if we can find a complicity we can share with each other, we can find a way through our loneliness, through our isolation, and make genuine progress in a rather cathartic way. Just to give you an example, um, how am I doing for time? One minute, last one. I think the other dominant fear that comes our way is fear itself. It's like the Lan in The Wizard of Oz a need for courage. Whether you're taking an exam, whether you want to break up with him, whether you want to go out with him, whether you want to paint a painting, write a book, whatever it is, so many people in their own personal inner narratives have this sense that inside them, they just can't make that leap. And Apollinaire wrote a beautiful poem adapted by Christopher Logue, and it goes like this. It's called Come to the Edge. Come to the edge, it's too high. Come to the edge, I'm too scared. Come to the edge, and they came, and they pushed, 
and they flew. Thank you. <laughs>